was just lucky the bike missed me. I think if the bike had hit me, I, I might have been cactus. I don't. I, I was knocked out as soon as I hit the road. But from their accounts, I was just flipping down the road, somersaulting on the bike, doing the same thing. Could I move my legs? Uh, was my neck okay? I did catch sight of one hand at right angles. And they said, don't look at the other one, that's the good one. This is centre in all stations of the child where it's not on the court. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Bottom corner on anything, understood, thank you. Hi. My name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land, and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. In this episode, I'm interviewing Phil Eli, who caught the motorcycle bug about 15 years ago and has since ridden across many continents and has spent more hours on two wheels than most of us can imagine. Riding a motorcycle can be dangerous, even at the best of times, but when you're travelling hundreds of kilometres across red dirt roads of the Australian interior, far from any communities or townships or hospitals, things can potentially go wrong in a really bad way. Phil is lucky to have survived his ordeal, and I'm pleased to have him here to tell me what happened. Hello, Phil. Morning, Lana. Before we dive into this story, could you explain how you got involved in motorcycle touring? Sure. Um, about '04, a, a very good mate of mine invited me to join them on an inaugural trip across America on Harleys. And uh, being the dutiful husband that I am, I uh, listened to my wife, who talked me out of going on that trip. Sometime later, I was uh, uh, on the board of a, a business centre and uh, my dear friend was a, a guest speaker and he was showing the video of that trip and he made comment that there's somebody in the audience that should have been with us and uh, I said to him, if you ever do that again, I'm coming with you. And he said, well, we're planning another one next year in 2006. So I, I, I let my wife know that this was actually happening. I wasn't asking permission this time. And, and so we, a collection of guys got together we flew to Miami. Uh, I, I didn't even have the bike license. I could always ride a bike, but I had never got the license. I quickly got some form of license together, got an international permit, flew to Miami and picked up uh, a Harley. We went down to the bottom of the Florida Keys and then we rode from the Florida Keys to Niagara. I led the guys through the Lincoln Tunnel into New York and we dropped the bikes off in Boston. And I came back from that trip and my wife said, well, I hope you got that out of your system. I said, I sure have. I'm buying a Harley. Uh, and that was the start of it. Would you mind just telling me, Phil, I mean, that's a really big trip across the US. That's that's thousands of kilometres. What was it about it that, that you loved? Well, it was this, this particular trip was south to north, really. Um, well, firstly, you can't believe you're allowed to do it when you're doing it because it's just such a unique thing to do. Bunch of guys, all Aussies, all on Harleys camaraderie, the adrenaline, 
and we're like fighter pilots. We're running in formation and, and fanging it through the mountains and jumping off the bikes and high-fiving each other every five minutes. And it was just a sense of adventure. Um, and together every night, wherever we were, a different place every day, it was just a lot of fun. And three weeks on the road, um, we had a whole set of road rules. No one was ever allowed to complain. We had road captain, we had tail end Charlie, and every two days we rotated it. And whatever happened, you had to follow road captain. So we had some set of rules about how we would conduct ourselves on the road. And, and when you've got a bunch of people on motorcycles going through heavy traffic, you've got to know what you're doing. So road captain would pull out, tail end Charlie would pull out and block the lane. We'd all move across in formation and go through. So there was a lot of, a lot of learning about all that. And then subsequent to that, it, it came up that every two years we would do another, another trip to the US. And uh, so consequently, you know, after three or four of those, we decided instead of renting bikes, we would ship our own over. And so we had, um, by this stage, I had the, the best CVO Harley street glide you could buy. And um, we loaded those into containers, shipped them to New York and then rode from New York down through the Smoky Mountains to Cherokee country and then across America to LA and Colorado. And just had many, many adventures across America. And the reason we would go there is because the culture in America is such that they, they absolutely love Harleys. It's an American icon. They can't believe there's a bunch of Aussies riding Harleys across America because, hey, man, we don't even do that, you know. And... They just kind of, this is pre-COVID too, and they, they just kind of loved the fact that there was a bunch of guys from Australia riding on Harleys. So we had just had a lot of fun. Are Harleys comfortable to ride for such long distances? Because I've never ridden on one, but I've certainly looked at some and they just don't look very comfortable. But I don't know if that's just from a motorist perspective or if you're a rider of a Harley, they're actually something that you can quite easily spend hours on. If you're doing, there are there are different types of Harleys, but the, the sort of bikes we're talking about are the street glides, which is, firstly, they're quite low, so you can put both feet flat on the ground. Uh, we have behind us a sissy bar, and we have slide-on luggage, so our luggage sits behind us. There's your backrest. You then have foot pegs out on the, on the rails, and you've got cruise control. So you can push yourself back against the backrest, put it on cruise control, take your hands off the, the, the bars, and just enjoy the scenery and uh... <laughs> wow okay so where did you go after the usa was it uh, did you settle at that point or did you then set your sights on even further travel well uh, the usa has always been the harley tour and then i think in 2010 uh one of our um, good friends in adelaide was organizing a trip to the highest road in the world in the himalaya through uh, a lovely uh, bunch of people out of Sydney uh, called Ferris Wheels. Uh, and 19 of us signed up for that tour. Uh, that was flying to New Delhi, picking up Royal Enfields, and then over three weeks traversing some of the most ridiculous roads I've ever been on in the most difficult and dangerous and arduous conditions to get to 18,380 feet in the Himalaya. That included two times over the handlebars on the Tibetan Plateau, a couple of ribs broken there, and um, just difficult but wonderful, wonderful adventure. And then we did uh, follow that up with the Andes, the same group, uh, down to the Andes on, on BMWs to 17,000 feet. So a couple of really long, arduous, different type of riding totally, and that just adds to your, your skill complement, I guess, you know. 
yeah. doing those sorts of things in different different circumstances. And did all of that then lead you to really want to explore Australia's interior um, by two wheels? Well, I guess what it did is it made me realise there were other things than Harleys. And so I had a number of other friends who had BMW. So uh, I bought myself a 1200GS BMW, which is a, an off-road, round-the-world Ewan McGregor-style bike, and fully kitted myself out to have that with a tent and all the things that go with it. Uh, and then we started exploring the Flinders Ranges um, on dirt roads. And that, you know, leads to another skill set again because it's, it's you're standing up a lot of the time on those bikes and you've really got to know what you're doing because it's they're not they're not 250ccs, it's a 1200cc, so it's a big motorbike still. Not as heavy as the Harley, but, you know, you're on, you're on creek beds and dirt tracks and mud and, and so there's a lot of different things to consider. Yeah, there's... Is there a lot of difference between riding on the highways of Australia's interior and riding on the highways of the US or no? Yeah, there is. Um, in the US, there's always a place to go nearby. Uh, once we, we actually rode from Adelaide to Port Douglas through Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, and then turned right. Uh, and on that trip, which I think I mentioned to you before, I did 100 kilometres, had 100 kilometres an hour, hands-free. There's just long, straight stretches of road and there's not much happening. But, of course, in America, you've got the Sierra Range, you've got the Rockies, and, and the reason you ride motorbikes is for those sort of roads where there's interest and, and you, you can test your riding skills a bit better. So it is, it is a lot mm-hmm. different riding on the road in Australia. Uh, but, of course, once you get off-road, you're off-road. That's, it doesn't matter where you are. It's, it has its own challenges. I did an interview some time ago with Steve Trelaw, who is similar to you, is a, a, an avid motorcycle rider. And he was talking about helmet time and how he has such value in, in that, that quietness or aloneness of just being him and a helmet and his travel. Is that the same for you? Like, do you get a real buzz out of just having that, that helmet time? I guess as a kid, we used to watch Mike Nelson and Sea Hunt, which were underwater divers in their, in their goggles and a motorcycle helmet's a bit like that. You, you, you're very insular. The cushioning around your ears, you've only got the, the, the view in front. You're on constantly fiddling and playing with your nose and itching, but you're with yourself in your own thoughts. It's quite contemplative. At times, you know, I've been on a, a bike in that space and just had epiphanies of being how wonderful to be doing exactly what I'm doing right now and, and, and loving it in the moment. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful pastime. There, there is danger, but, you know, there is danger and everything that makes a lot of sense okay so then you had this plan with some mates to ride the birdsville track uh what season was that uh this was well it was originally intended to be around september last year and the reason for doing it was a mate was having a 70th he said hell let's go to birdsville for a, a birthday party so um we said i'm in he ended up having a heart attack a few stents later um and a few weeks later he deemed himself fit for travel and uh, we rearranged it. And by then, a number of them had to drop out because of the timing. And so it was uh, early, early mid-November last year. So it was, it was getting towards late spring, early summer. Mm. And how many of there were you that were going to be doing this trip up to Birdsville? Three of us, just three. Good mates, I hope. And we'd all ridden before together and all capable. Uh, Bill had ridden South America on his, with, with another mate for six or eight weeks. Lyndon, who was with me uh, when we last travelled up the 
Flinders Rangers, uh, I tore a front tyre. He pulled the wheel and the tyre and patched that twice on the road. Took us six hours and we rode into Arcarula under the moonlight the last 60k. So we had travelled a bit together and we trusted each other in uh, capability. Mm. So there were three of us doing the doing the run. And were you going to be just, um, did you have a swag and you were just going to sleep under the stars or what was the plan in terms of where you were going to be sleeping and so forth? Heading up, day one was Woomera, day two was Maree, so that's all on the bitumen. So there, that's a couple of decent legs, I don't know, 300k's each, I guess, um, and that's all on the bitumen, so we stayed at the Maree pub. From there on to Birdsville, it's quite a, a decent stretch. You've got 300k on the dirt to Mungarani, and then 350k on the dirt up to Birdsville from there. So 650k on the dirt each way, it's quite a stretch. You kind of just get to the middle and fuel up and have a rest and do the same thing the, the next day and over again. So mm. so we, we weren't necessarily going to swag. We had we had swags with us, not swags, but uh, tents and sleeping bags. If we if we felt like we could pull up and uh, and and do our own thing, so you got all the way up to Birdsville, and did you have the big celebration as you'd planned? Well, it was a it was a long run. Yeah, we we got there. The bikes were filthy. We had some good digs. We, we there was a accommodation there, which was kind of like um, oh, just huts, but you know, they were very clean and tidy. And we walked around to the Birdsville pub that night and had a celebratory beer and a and a decent meal and enjoyed ourselves with the locals, uh, with the plan to come back, head back again the next day, maybe a different way. Which way were you planning to come back? What was the route that you were looking at? I think it was via Tipperborough. I'm not totally familiar with the, the layout of the roads from there. I was relying more on the other guys. But um, it was coming back through Tipperborough, and when we took off on that road the next morning, I felt really uncomfortable. The boat was bike was sliding all over the place and... Uh, wasn't very comfortable with the way things were going and it wasn't long after a fairly large washout up up in the centre of Australia and we, we eventually got to a point where Lyndon, who we regard as being dangerously optimistic, he got bogged and he said, Look, it'll be fine, we'll get through and I said, yeah, but if we do and it happens again, we're not going to get back and then we're going to be absolutely buggered, you know. So Bill and I arced up and we said, no, we're not doing it, we're, we're heading back. So we were already 50k down the track and we, we came back, that 50k back to Birdsville, regrouped and then decided we'd come back again, uh, back the way we came. Right. So off you go and you're heading back towards Mungarani at this point and you've got 350 kilometres or so of dirt to get back to Mungarani. It wasn't raining but there had been a, that lot of rain beforehand. What was the road condition like? Oh, it varied a lot. There were patches where the, the gravel was dry and we would sit on 80, 85 k's. The bike would drift a bit, but you, you kind of expect it. If you get a bit of a drift, you accelerate a bit and move across to a better part of the road. I mean, we did on the way up. We were having such a good time. Uh, you know, I think I was leading for a lot of the way. And, and on the way to Mungarani, there was one tree, uh, which I pulled up and um, the boys came up behind me. And we got out the Nespresso pod manual machine and made ourselves a hot coffee and had some reconstituted bacon and eggs and looked around at the vastness of the, the outback and said, well, wonder what the other people are doing today, you know. This is the life. So we were having a lot of fun. Yeah. This is the life, yeah, adventure. On, on the way up, we actually encountered a really bad patch, which um, Bill went down in the mud. I nearly went down in the mud. We weren't sure whether we'd get through, but uh, I took off and I managed to get through and then we regrouped. So we knew this patch was there about 80K 
from Birdsville. So when we were heading back, we got through that patch, which kind of gives you a feeling like, okay, well, we're over the worst of it. We know what's coming because we've already done it. And off we go. And um, that's kind of how we, we treated it. You know, we, were, we weren't foolhardy. We just carried on at the same speed. But we were comfortable that we'd been through the worst of it. And then what happened? Well, I was in the front. I was on a nice bit of gravel road doing about 80, 85. And I could see ahead a, a darker patch of road. And usual routine for anything you're not sure of is you'll go down a cog and down a cog. So you'll slow down. And I probably slowed down to about 40 k an hour 30 40 k an hour looked ahead assessed the situation picked my line and went which is what i'd done countless times before and the minute i got on this dark patch the bike was sideways it was apparently um where water had collected after they'd laid a bit of gravel on the road and the water had collected where it just dipped down a bit and the top had dried so it looked okay but underneath it was slimy wet clay which was like an ice rink. Usually when you you find yourself sideways, it's usually in sand, and the modus operandi for that is to accelerate, bury the back wheel, lift the front wheel, and accelerate using your back wheel to get out of trouble and get yourself onto the right surface again so you can, you can ease off. And I was attempting to do that, but in fact what was happening is the back wheel was spinning and the centrifugal force was sending the bike left and right in wild tank slaps. And I was trying to control the bike whilst accelerating and it just wildly left and right, left and right about eight or ten times and, until finally the front went as the bike swung back and I, I saw myself go over the handlebars. So what sort of speed were you doing, Phil? Because you had been down to 40 but then you were trying to accelerate out through it. I, I, I'd say it was about 80 to 90 k's now. Right. What did your friend see as, as you went over the handlebars? Uh, Bill was behind me and... All he saw was both the bike and I somersaulting through the air, about eight feet in the air. He said it looked a mess. Um, I don't know how many times I cartwheeled down the road, but obviously it was quite a few. I was, I was just lucky the bike missed me. I think if the bike had hit me, I, I might have been cactus. I, don't, I, I was knocked out as soon as I hit the road, but from their accounts, I was just flipping down the road, somersaulting and the bike doing the same thing. What did they do? Did they? How did they get to you? Because obviously between you and them is this huge danger zone that you had unsuccessfully tried to manoeuvre their way through. So how did they get to you? Do you know? Well, it wasn't so much. It didn't even look like a danger zone. This is the point. It was just a patch of road and they slowed down to walking pace and traversed that patch or went around it, I'm not sure. I was knocked unconscious. I don't, I don't know how long I was out for. I, I know Bill thought I was dead. And we had lost a, a dear friend in recent times, and you know, it was also Bill's brother-in-law. So he was quite cut up, and I, I was just knocked out. And I came to at some point on the road, but there were people around me at that stage. Right. That must have been really hard for, for your two mates. Now, I know that they ended up flagging down a motorist, uh, a car that had been following or had come up a short while later. Do you remember any of that or what were you told about what happened at that point well we, we were fortunate because sarah and luke were a young couple that were in the birdsville pub the night before and they saw us uh, in fact sarah said to me later she looked at me and she said to luke that guy looks like trouble <laughs> uh, little did she know and and dear sarah had some nursing background 
And so they came across me on the road and the boys obviously in a bit of a flat. And they had a little uh, minivan and they were able to rig an awning. They met, they got to me and wrapped me in a space blanket. I, I think I was unconscious. I, I don't know for how many minutes, but I think I, I remember waking up and she being there. So it must have been for quite a while. Uh, but they were really helpful and they talked me through it and we were just trying to see how bad I was. Could I move my legs? Uh, was my neck okay? I did catch sight of one hand at right angles. And they said, don't look at the other one. That's the good one. Uh, so you know, I knew I was, both arms were snapped. And then they managed to, they made a decision to remove the helmet, which, which made it a lot easier. It was quite hot. So under the awning was better. And, uh, but that was the start of about two and a half hours laying on the road. Wow. How were you feeling at that point, Phil? Because you, were you in a lot of pain or had the pain not really struck yet? Oh, I, I was definitely in shock. I just really wanted to go to sleep, but I knew I couldn't. I had six broken ribs. The two wrists were gone. I had a knee and a shoulder, which uh, were injured. But apart from that, nothing internal, which was the big the big worry. I didn't really know how bad I was, um, but it was just such a long time to be lying there. It was just Sarah kept me talking, uh, you know, telling me, let me tell you my life story, that sort of thing. And she kept me busy. But I could hear my heartbeat just bouncing off the road and rattling around my ribs. It was just seconds felt like minutes. You know, it was just a really hard, probably the hardest thing I've had to put up with, really, I guess, in terms of fortitude, having to just manage myself and get through it. Now, you were um, still 300 or 200 kilometres away from Mungarani. You That was the closest help was a long way away. So what did your friends and, and this young couple decide to do to make sure that they could get you help? We'd passed a white Toyota about 50 k's back. Guys looked like they were workmen of some form. And so they dispatched Lyndon to go back on his own, which is dangerous in itself. He rode the 50 k's back and they were from the council and they were able to use a two-way radio to let Clifton Hill Station, which is between Mungarani and where we were, know and they were alerted to call the flying doctor. They came back with Bill and they made the decision that we had, they had to get me to Clifton Hill Station. So somehow they managed to get me, haul me to my feet uh, and squeeze me into the front seat of the Toyota. And we had about a 50, 80 K drive to Clifton Hill Station, which wasn't a lot of fun. No. Clifton Hill Station is, um, we've actually interviewed, the first podcast I did for this series is with Peter Nunn, who is the manager of Clifton Hill Station. And it's a massive station. It's a five-hour drive from the north boundary to the southern boundary, um, and they have their own airstrip very close to uh, the homestead and so forth. So uh, you're actually very lucky to be, you know, within 20 k's of of a runway and of, you know, of all the things that would be needed. But I guess that trip was far from comfortable. You with all those broken ribs. It was about eight. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so it was still a fair run. It was about an hour. And when I got there, they said the flying doctors called, but they're still two and a half hours away. So they had a medical kit and were in contact with the flying doctor. And somehow we managed to get my very tight riding pants down enough to give me a jab of morphine in the thigh, which calmed me down a bit. And then it was just a long wait. And they were lovely people, Fiona and Pete, and just really caring. But it was just, you know, at times sort of stand still. In those circumstances, you, you're just pretty well helpless and just taking whatever help you can get, you know. 
How were you feeling at that point? Were you taking comfort in the fact that help was on the way or were you feeling like you were losing control of your own body and and what it was going through? I was angry. (laughs) Internally, I was angry that it happened. And I kept saying, I'm a better writer than that, you know, and uh, I was frustrated and angry that, that something that appeared so simple brought me undone. And then, of course, I was, I knew my wife would be, I told you so. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was upset that I'd created this drama, but I was also ex- extremely grateful for the help I was getting. It's, it's really weird to find yourself totally helpless when by nature you're not. By nature you, you can do everything, you know, that you want to do. And then uh, when all that's taken away out from underneath you, you you're, you're helpless, you're subject to everyone else's um, capability. Did the flying doctor, um, when they finally landed uh, there at Clifton Hill Station, did they give you fast relief and give you comfort that uh, you were going to be in hospital shortly and being sorted out? It was literally like the cavalry had arrived. I heard the plane land and I heard it come back and I thought, oh, thank God the flying doctor's here. You know, finally uh, there's going to be some real, you know, action. And they were all efficiency, um, testing me out, checking me out. They had to cut my beautiful BMW jacket off me with a tiny pair of scissors and that sort of went off into the sunset. And um, and then finally they gave me the green whistle. I've got to tell you, it's no wonder that's pretty popular because uh, that was just like psychedelia. I just, bang, I'm out of here. Just And whilst I was having this uh, psychedelic experience, they straightened my arms for me and um, wrapped them up and wow. took care of all that. But I was, I was in fairyland. There is a couple of photos I've got of the the oxygen mask on and laid out and strapped down onto the stretcher. And um, uh, it, it was a, it felt like it had taken a long time for me to get to that point f- from the accident. I think it must have been about, by the time I was two and a half, three and a half, close to six hours after the accident before I was actually airlifted out. So it was plenty of time to reflect. What were your reflections, Phil? Did you say that's it for motorbike riding or was it more like, okay, this is not going to conquer me, I will be back? No, I I was reflecting, I guess, on where to from here. I didn't quite know. I knew I had a fair road to recovery. Everything had changed, you know, in my life suddenly. And uh, I was reflecting on the family and the impact on them. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that inner annoyance at myself for letting it happen in the first place. You know, it's, it's, it comes with the territory. Was your wife being informed this whole time, Phil, Jenny? She Was she at home pacing and saying, oh, my gosh, is Phil, you know, going to come back in 35 pieces? Or had you been in touch with her at all? Uh, I, I hadn't, uh, but I'm, I'm also a sailor, an avid sailor. So I've, I've got a, an EPIRB that I wear on my life jacket, and, which I was going to bring on this trip, but Bill had one already and we figured we didn't need two. So I left that behind and the minute... The accident happened. Bill set the EPIRB off, and that's what triggered the whole relief mechanism because um, that bounced off California back to Australia, and then they then contacted Bill's next of kin, who contacted Jenny, and they said, "Look, we don't know what's happened, but something's happened." And Jenny said, "It'll be Phil. I guarantee it'll be Phil." Oh, that would be the worst phone she, call to have. I swear, if I because oh, you don't know what's happened you don't know what's happened all you know is that something's happened and it's not good yeah and so i think bill finally made contact with jenny 
and gave her the good news. Um, but you know, he said, "Look, he's 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 busted up a bit, but he's okay. He's he's breathing and he's capable speaking and lucid and and all that." I guess she had some degree of comfort at that, but um, it wasn't the call you'd like to to have anybody receive. Yeah. When the RFDS arrived there at Clifton Hill Station, they had to stabilise you before they could get you onto the plane and fly you out. Did they give you or were you just so high on your green whistle (laughs) that you don't recall any of this? But Did they give any kind of assessment in terms of, okay, we know he's got broken ribs, we know he's, you know, he's stuffed up his knee and his shoulder, we know that his wrists are shattered, but did did they give any kind of assessment? Not so much to me, but but they they ran a whole series of tests. They uh, I think they had a portable X-ray machine, and they were they were doing all sorts of things. And I guess my own lucidity, to a degree, would have given them a degree uh, some some degree of confidence that I wasn't banged up too badly. But I you know obviously broken bones and, and those sorts of things. But as far as internals, I didn't have any um, signs of internal bleeding. Yeah, they but they were very thorough. And, and they were very thorough before I got the green whistle, so they needed to communicate with me properly mm-hmm. to ask me questions and, and things like that. And it was only really when they, they knew they had to straighten the arms and, and stabilise them that, that they needed to lose me. Right. They flew you to Adelaide. Do you remember that flight at all, Phil? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was strapped down, the doctor and the nurse alongside me in the plane, and it was um, a two-hour flight, so I was at 1,000 k's from home. It was a reasonable lengthy flight. I was in and out of consciousness, I guess, during that time. I was sort of trying to relax and sleep and not get hung up. And really, you're at that stage, you're just helpless. You're strapped in a stretcher. you just got to lay still and, and just try and be be at ease with yourself. Mm. Did you end up having to have surgery when you arrived at um, the tertiary hospital in Adelaide? We got in on a Wednesday night. I was due for surgery Thursday and waited all day, but then that was cancelled. They had to order some some rods, titanium rods, to fix to my right arm, just to totally stabilise the whole wrist area. So I went into surgery on the Friday, and I was discharged on the Monday, so I was full of drugs the whole weekend. But then I got home, and um, I was home, and then I had a terrible spasm attack. My whole back spasmed. We had to get an ambulance to take me to Calvary Hospital. I spent another five days there on my back, which was just probably a, uh, I guess, muscular reaction to the whole trauma. Oh, wow. Okay, well, all of that's almost a year ago now. How how have you recovered? How are your hands? How are your wrists? How are you doing? Look, I'm bluffing a lot. <laughs> I've had wonderful hand therapy um, and I've had really good feedback. That I had to go back for surgery. The rod had to be taken out. But then in the middle of all that, the tendon on my left thumb abraded itself on some broken bone and I couldn't lift my thumb. So they had to take one of the tendons off my index finger and reattach it to my left thumb. So that was that put me back an extra six weeks of, of rehab. Uh, but I've been doing lots and lots of exercises and stretching and bit by bit, you know, you get gradually better, but I can almost make a fist. But they hurt and they, I think the doctor said, look, You'll be 60 to 70% of movement that you used to be able to do, and that might allow you to do 80 to 90% of what you need to do. Mm-hmm. I can't bend them much, but I can grasp. Yeah. And I've since, I've since been sailing on my boat for two weeks, so we managed that okay. Wow. Wow. That's, it's quite remarkable from such a severe injury to both wrists to still be able to have the use of your hands and to be able to yeah. just you know go about everyday living without having major impediment. It's fantastic. 
I've always been a very hands-on sort of guy too, and it, it worried me, it still worries me a bit that I'm not going to be as firm a handshake as I used to have. But, you know, I'm driving. I, I bought myself another motorbike. I've, <laughs> I've, uh, I, I rode my Harley today, so, you know, it's... Um, it's not all bad, really. There's no stopping you, Phil. I, I think your wife must be very, very tolerant. <laughs> I mean that in the best of ways. <laughs> but I, she must be very, very tolerant. Wow. Okay, so you've got yourself a new bike and you went dry, you went riding this morning. Are you planning to still do, you know, travelling through the interior or are you just going to stick to the bitumen these days? No, I think... Um... I'm 70. I've decided that long-distance dirt is not something I need to do. I don't need to prove that to myself or anyone else anymore. And there is an added element of risk in uh, on dirt riding. I mean, I, I loved it, and I was having such a good time. We were riding really well. That's the thing that frustrates me most. But I can't afford to go over the handlebars again. Yeah. I've had a spiral fracture of my leg. I've broken an arm. I've done a few things on motorbikes. So... Touring in the high country, Tasmania, that sort of thing on a on a Harley or a BMW tourer that I've just bought. Um, they're the sorts of things that I I think I can still manage okay. Yeah. As long as I can keep a lid on the red mist and we'll be fine, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have advice for anybody else that's got the touring bug, that just loves the open road and that helmet time? Do it. You've got one life, honestly. Um, I'm kind of fortunate because I, I've had a fairly adventurous life. You know, I was in the Merchant Marine as a 15-year-old on a steamship. So I, I ran away to sea when I was 15, and, and at 20 I was a boatswain on a brand-new container ship running a crew of 30 men. So I, I've had travel in, in me since I was a boy, and uh, we migrated from England when I was eight on a ship for six weeks. So... There, there are things that, that don't leave you. And uh, I just think when you realise how quickly the years pass, you've got to get the balance in your life. You've got to fit family and work and life within the time frame you've got allotted to you. And uh, I think I feel sorry for people that never dare, never push themselves to have a crack and then find yourself in those remote places and... You know, you're staring at wonder at the stars and, and there's no one, no one there and you're just so thankful for to be able to do it. Very wise words. Thank you so much, Phil, for telling us what happened that day. And I hope that there's many, many thousands of kilometres still to be travelled on those two wheels of yours, but not on dirt. <laughs> not on dirt. And, and let, me, let me say one last thing, Lana. The overwhelming um, feeling is one of humility to receive the sort of help that I've received. We're just so grateful. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Listening.